You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the network, its advertisers, owners, or sponsors. Good afternoon. Welcome to Conversations and Meditations. I'm your host, Virgil Varix. Today is June 23rd, 2018. Uh, before the show starts, let's get a word from our sponsors. If you can't seem to stay ahead of your bills, uh, this message is for you. How would you like to have a large portion of your credit card debt, medical bills, department store debt forgiven? National Credit Card Relief would like to give you free information on a proven debt forgiveness program. This program has been used by thousands to legally forgive millions in unsecured debt. It's not for, uh, it's not bankruptcy. It's not consolidation. The special program actually wipes clean a portion of your debt that is forgiven from what you owe to creditors. Call for free information and get all the questions answered in the first free call. The more you owe, the more you can save. If you have at least 10000 or more in credit card bills, this debt forgiveness program can be very effective. <coughs> Excuse me. Call for free information and find out more now. 800-218-717-0. 0 there is no cost or obligation for the information. Don't wait. Call 800-218-7170. That's 800-218-7170. Get your debt problem solved today. Again, call 800-218-7170. Thank you. All right. Great. So before the show starts, let's get into some uh, housekeeping and some introductions. So um, first things first, uh, website was is back up. It was down for a few days. I um, just wanted to make sure a few things were changed uh, in accordance with the page numbers, and I did some changes to the podcast page as well, so you will see some edits there uh, if you go to that page. Um, yeah, so today's guest is my good friend Misha. We're here to talk today about uh, democratic, so- democratic socialism uh, and democratic socialist of America and uh, the ideology, the party, and um, kind of what – how they're trying to solve today's and society's problems in uh, the way they uh, see fit. So, Misha, how you doing? Good, man. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, of course. Of course. No problem. So I think uh, first thing uh, before we get started here, uh, just a quick um, you know, caveat. I personally – and you know this. Uh, I personally am a classical liberal libertarian. I believe in capitalism. I'm Probably one of the bigger supporters I know in terms of my friend group and in my family of capitalism and its effects on society. Um, but that doesn't mean that I didn't want to have a conversation with somebody that has an opposing viewpoint or a different viewpoint on terms of the economics and in terms of social socioeconomic problems that are facing us today as a country. 
So I think, you know, before we start, it's important to say, like, I'm really happy that I was able to get you in here today and and really have this talk because I feel like we can do a lot of you know, a lot of learning today and I can be able to understand a lot more things about, you know, um, the particular uh, ideology and more so uh, to to the how this uh, party and how this ideology will solve the problems for the future. So I'm really excited and really interested to see where this is going to go. Yeah, it's good to be back on. I'm excited for today's conversation. All right. Awesome. Awesome. So um, I guess we'll kick it off. So I guess uh, some the first thing I'd like to start off with, you know, as usual, is kind of get to um, a definition and understanding of what, you know, democratic socialist is or what what these things will entail. So, I mean, just the basic definition that I've I've gotten and seen is, you know, it's a political philosophy that advocates political democracy alongside social ownership of the means of production. And, you know, we've heard democratic socialism being used a lot in today's lexicon and in the elections. And so, I mean, like there's people who are democratic socialists who believe that the right economic policy should be socialism followed by a political democracy, usually some sort of direct democracy from what I've been reading, um, not necessarily representative one. Um, and then there's also social democrats, which are people that are in favor of a free market, but like a really heavily subsidized welfare state. And I, I think there's there's a lot of similarities between those two positions, but one of them more so is, in, uh, is anti-capitalist, um, more of a socialist party and a part of ideo- ideology. And the other one is more so of a mixed, uh, heavily mixed economy. Would you agree with that distinction or? Yeah, I, I think that that distinction makes sense. Let me just um, – yeah maybe contextualize it in terms of the Democratic Socialists of America yes. and what they're saying. Um, I just became a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. We were actually supposed to have a Medicare for all canvassing session this morning, but one of the leaders of the Detroit chapter uh, passed away, unfortunately, in a oh, car wow. accident. Sorry, so that geez. kind of complicated uh, today's event. But um, anyways, uh you know, on on the sort of about DSA page of their website, mm-hmm. it says it acknowledges we are unlikely to see an immediate end to capitalism tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they acknowledge that at the same time they they don't like capitalism. Mm-hmm. They think it's producing a lot of societal ills. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think it's producing a lot of societal ills, mm-hmm. I should say. And sure. um, so their their vision for democratic socialism is a vision for a more free, democratic, and humane society mm-hmm. where. Um, you know, people have a real voice in the choices and relationships that affect the entirety of their lives. Um, more specifically, decrease the influence of money in politics, empower ordinary people in workplaces and the economy, restructure gender and cultural racial relationships to be more equitable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, um, you know, regardless of the broader philosophical definitions of of um you know social democracy versus democratic socialism i think that um the democratic socialists of america are trying to in the short term um you know achieve goals that are reasonable that are attainable that can have immediate positive impact in people's lives Mm, gotcha gotcha that's great so um the other question i had uh quickly about it is um, some people will hear the word democratic socialism and then they will automatically go towards this, you know, caveat of, oh, well, socialism, isn't that the same thing as Marxism? Isn't that the same thing as communism? 
what would you say that the major differences between, you know, just regular socialism, I guess like single party state socialism versus democratic socialism and the Marxist communist stuff? Are is there is there a relation or do you feel like they're they're separate but equal in a lot of ways or do you feel that these uh things don't really have a connecting thread? What would you what would you think what would you say about that? <clears throat> um in terms of the way communism has been implemented historically, I don't think that that has a legitimate connection to okay. Marx's political philosophy gotcha. of sort of a scientific socialism yep. where he was sort of just laying the math out. And, and, you know, this is a, a very abridged version of Marx, sure, but sure. he's sort of laying the math out there about how, um, you know, uh, businesses – their their value is created by labor mm -hmm. and you know workers essentially their wage um is is never going to be what their labor is actually worth I because see. the definition of profit requires that a capitalist take that money mm -hmm. take a part of what their labor is worth mm -hmm. for themselves so that is kind of the fundamental injustice that Marx was pointing to, I think. Gotcha. And I think that that is more tied to uh, the democratic socialists of America and, and what democratic socialism is, is trying to do in terms of democratizing mm. um, not only wealth, but, you know, not only economic issues, but uh, every sort of um, kind of oppressive force that, mm -hmm. could, that could affect someone's life. So that's the way I would kind of distinguish those three things you point to. Got you, got you. So you would say that, that that the Democratic Socialist Party and I guess more so the ideology takes a democratic approach to Marx's ideals and, and Marx's uh, theories? More so. Yeah, than I mean the, I think Marx – I think if Marx I mean, was alive – I mean I don't know what he would say if he was alive today. But I think that his yeah. philosophy is democratic. I don't think it, it, mm -hmm. was, it, it was ever totalitarian mm -hmm. or mm – -hmm. um, Anything like Stalin or Mao, but that's got gotcha, you, know, got gotcha, you for sure. No, no, that's that's a, my two cents. No, that's that's a it's an important distinction I think uh, to make. Um, uh, I guess like some quick things uh, to point on that. I would at least in in my perspective, and you probably already know uh, my perspective on this. It's uh, pretty pretty similar to the point that I feel that um, communism and Marxism that they're. I mean, I feel like, you know, because the way it works, at least uh, through basic, this is a really basic and basic understanding of Marx, is that you have capitalism and then after capitalism's there, you would have uh, state socialism and then state socialism was, would be the bridge between, you know, the class of society, which is communism. I guess like my argument, at least in that point of view, would be that the bridge would, would ev eventually inevitably lead towards a, uh, a Mao. And, that, and, that's, and that's the only difference that I have there. But again, that's nothing that's uh, – Well, what is – just hypothetically, yeah. what does the end of a, ca of a classless society have to do with – totalitarianism or Mao or Stalin. Oh, so the, the the end point doesn't have anything to do with it. It's it's on the road to it. That's that's where I would make the argument. I would say the end point necessarily is a I mean is a is not a not, not necessarily a, a bad end point. I think the end point is a, a noble one in a lot of ways and it's centered around uh reduction of uh harm to to people, reduction of um suffering and reduction of inequality um 
proven and perceived inequalities, whether you know it's in a, in a government or whether it's in a in a, in a larger society. So yeah, I, I would say that that's where I'm I'm coming from from there. Well, I think this is why the word democracy is so important mm-hmm. in terms of the democratic socialists of America because. We do believe that the means of production should be controlled by the workers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're not, you know, we're not concerned with a small business owner or mm-hmm. a middle class person who's taken, who's put in effort and taken risk to create a business and create an income for themselves. That, that's more just what, what the democratic socialism of America are more concerned with are the fact that the top 1% of, uh, of, uh, you know, this country control forty mm-hmm. percent of the wealth mm-hmm. in terms of uh, how much? Yeah, in terms of their money, gotcha. they're hoarding the wealth. They're passing it on to their children and their grandchildren mm-hmm. rather than putting it back into the economy or rather than mm-hmm. expanding their businesses. For example, like this, there's six Waltons that who are part of the Walmart family empire this, who have more wealth than forty percent of America, which is mm-hmm. just ridiculous. And I think that this kind of shows why shows how. Um, you know, really ever since the 80s and the Reagan era of deregulation, um, the rich have have not been taxed nearly enough and their taxes have gone way down to, you know, 30%. Some some with capital gains and stuff are only paying, like Mitt Romney's only paying, what, like 15 or 10? I don't know. I think so. The exact uh, numbers, but. Not sure. Um, and the, the other part of this is that there's a greater return on wealth than income because the stock market grows much faster than wages. Wages are very stagnant for the average, average worker. Um, and more wealth, you know, the bottom line here is more wealth allows the super rich to buy more political power, which in turn gets them more wealth because they can assure that taxes stay low. They can assure that all of the, you know, regulations that would, uh, inhibit their exploitive business practices, you know, remain at bay. So mm-hmm. it's sort of this feedback loop, loop of wealth production wherein, the the rich keep getting more and more rich, whereas you know the poor are living day to day, check to check, and can never build wealth, can never build a, f- a future for their families, for their children. So it's just kind of this um, ever growing inequality that's going to lead to a breaking point at some point, and gotcha. it won't be pretty gotcha. unless you know we can do something politically in the meantime. For sure, for sure. So. You know, uh, I, I just had a few questions here that I was working on earlier today, and uh, I just wanted to ask you a few of these and see what you think. So, like, um, what do you think uh, is the strongest point to defend your beliefs? Uh, what, what, what position, uh, policy-wise, it could be principle-wise, what do you think would be uh, the strongest defense of democratic socialism in your eyes? It doesn't have to necessarily be uh, something, you know, concrete. It could be something that you think – is particularly important? I mean, the strongest defense of it ideologically is I think what I just point to is about how the super rich are just plundering wealth Mm -hmm. from America and, you know, their children and grandchildren are getting unearned wealth like the Waldens. Their -hmm. their wealth is totally unearned. They're just born into it by accident Mm -hmm. of birth, total luck. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as the Democratic Socialists of America specifically, I think the short-term uh, solutions they're trying to implement, you know, Medicare for all, mm-hmm. which is a big one, which yep. it sort of addresses the the gap that Obamacare left in terms of health care coverage between, you know, you make enough money so that you don't qualify for Medicare, mm-hmm. but you don't make enough to, 
you know, really get full medical coverage. So you you have either no a lack of coverage, no coverage, or you're undercovered, underinsured. So we want to expand um, Medicare to uh, cover all people. We think that you know the, the the biggest justification is that there are we have human rights crises mm-hmm. here in America. Mm-hmm. We don't have guaranteed medical coverage. We don't have guarantee. You know, people aren't guaranteed food, shelter. Mm-hmm. A good education, mm-hmm. water, like these. If Flint still doesn't have clean water, yep. like these, these things are immediate, tangible problems that are affecting every the lives of everyday Americans, and they're the most pressing issues in this country. I think. No, for sure. Um, so that's that's why I think the DSA is is so justified in their goals, and why it's so important that an organization like them exists and is doing what they're doing. Got you. Now you mentioned, you know, rights, and I think rights are an important, you know, place to come from. Um, specifically, when you're talking about uh, re- reduction of all these, you know, uh, things you're talking about uh, that are affecting the working class and affecting uh, people in the low, lower economic strata. Um, where do you think rights come from? Do you think rights come from? Are they natural? Are they given down to us from uh, government? I mean, obviously, are they, uh, you know. Manifest destiny <laughs> type thing. Where do you think? No. The, where do you think? Right? Yeah, obviously never. But uh, where do you think uh, rights come from? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what has to do with manifest destiny or colonialism. Oh. I'd say that the the ethos of DSA is very anti-colonial. For sure. Very. Yeah. So uh, rights are just. I mean, I don't have a metaphysical answer for you. I just think that people have inherently are inherently valuable and have worth. Uh, just because, uh, you know, of the golden rule, essentially, you should treat others how you would want to be treated. Mm-hmm. And everyone, you know, should have equality of opportunity. I'm not saying that, that equality of outcome needs to be the ultimate goal, but mm-hmm. equality, a, a baseline of equality where regardless of your race, your gender, you know, whether you're born into wealth, um, you know, what have you, you have the ability to live a healthy and fulfilling life. And right now, that's just not the case for a lot of Americans and a lot of people around the world. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, I guess, uh, so I, I, would, I would say like my point on, you know, some people believe that their rights are given down from, you know, God or their rights are coming down from this overall uh, historical perception. I would, at least my, my point is like, uh, uh, you know, rights comes from our ability uh, for humans in general, not for you know necessarily individuals, but humans as a, as a whole, uh, the ability for us to be rational actors and for us to you know the capability of our rational faculties that you know only rational beings can have rights. Well, if that's the case, then what about people with mental disabilities or mental handicaps? No, for sure. So yeah, if so, that's if that's no, really so, your basis of rights, then no, but they're humans though. So I'm saying all humans, all humans on. Just on, in general, I'm not talking about individual cases, because you don't know whether somebody is going to have an intellectual disability or not. Okay, you have so to, you're kind of distinguish, distinguishing between humans and a, and other animals. Yes, exactly. Because okay. I would say I wouldn't say like animals have rights, but there's animal welfare, and I, I believe in animal welfare, yeah. not necessarily animal rights, because I don't think you know animals have you know rights that are given down from reason. Because right. I think rights at the same time we probably shouldn't be like you know pumping a bunch of hormones into chickens and exactly. keeping them in coops no, no. so they can't. Exactly. Turn around where they're living in their poop, and then we're eating that. Yeah, like that's not healthy. No, no, or of pigs not being able to turn around in their crate. Great. So, like, exactly. Yeah, like 
you know, we're getting in kind of off the beaten path here, but um, I think we agree in terms of just humans have worth. Yep, I would, I would, I would say so. Yeah, but I would say that uh, the, the worth is coming. It is, has been like derived through reason over the years. I, I mean, I would, I wouldn't have that definition, but I would say. I mean, maybe it's just arbitrary. Maybe it's just okay. because because we're, we're you know have self interest. We should mm-hmm. extend that mm-hmm. ideal to other people and mm-hmm. then consider what what yep. their interests are. Yeah, exactly. Um, because they're like because humans aren't that different mm-hmm. from each exactly. other. Exactly, exactly. And you don't want anybody to commit any uh, force against you. As you wouldn't want to do that to anybody else. So you, it's kind of you know reciprocal uh, altruism in a lot of ways. But the last thing I'll say is. As far as humans being more valuable than any other animal, I mean, I don't have any justification for that in gotcha. terms of anything. I mean, I think for it's sure. all kind of uh, it's all kind of created and fabricated by us. But okay, yeah. But I'm most concerned about you know the people around me because I guess I can empathize with their suffering more than I can an animal. Sadly, as sad as that is to say, I mean, I guess it's that just because. Sense. You're a human. So. It's a more it's a more immediate effect in terms of the people around me or the the things I see on a daily basis, as opposed to other types of mm. human or rights gotcha. activism. Gotcha. Yeah, for sure. Um, wh- now, um, let me see. Now, do you, do you think? What do you think of you know when you when you talk about wealth? Uh, what what is wealth in terms of the individual? What's wealth in terms of the, the nation? Is there a difference to that? Is there are they are they are they separate? But are they how does that uh, how does that fit into your kind of understanding of wealth? Because I have a particular understanding of wealth that comes from um, you know more of a of a capitalist type of uh, point of view, and I, w- I was just wondering if you have a a similar point of view to wealth as I do. So I would say that wealth in terms of the in, the, in terms of the individual is "Quote unquote," the fruits of their labor, the fruits of their work, right? Um, what they get paid for doing a voluntary job. So nobody is uh, forcing them to do the job; um, they are voluntarily choosing it. So, like for instance, in, uh, in something in work we've been dealing with is you know engineering is such a high field, such a crazy so, you know demand for it, and the supply is really low. So you have engineers jumping from company to company because they're you know. The, because of the supply of their labor is uh, so highly taken. So, what would you say? And that's and through that they would you know gain wealth and all this stuff. Be, and primarily because their job is you know highly valued in today's society. You know, versus like um, a stonemason might not be as highly valued. So, where where do you see wealth for the individual and the nation? And is it connected to the current process we've been having in our economics, or is it something different? I would sort of my understanding of wealth is it goes it's historical right yeah so it goes back to you know the beginnings of America and in terms of all the wealth that was stolen from mm-hmm. slaves for example mm-hmm. that debt has never been repaid mm-hmm. four hundred years of slavery mm-hmm. um, you know that's an example I think of how wealth accumulates intergenerationally it's passed on through families mm-hmm. so over time you know it, you you trace it all the way to the, to today there are families who um who have wealth that is completely unearned in terms of 
in terms of, you know, their merit. Mm-hmm. We don't live in a meritocracy. I don't think we live in an okay. oligarchy because of this. Okay, gotcha. Because their wealth allows them to buy political power and it, to ensure that, that it protects them and their wealth. So my understanding of wealth is historical, it's familial, mm-hmm. and um, that's the major concern is that um, this sort of hoarding of wealth uh, by by these people and and how just absolutely demonic and reprehensible it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, my my one thing to that is is I see where you're coming from, and I, I also would say that um, wealth, at least in in my perspective, uh, in a lot of ways, I, I do believe we live in a in a in a meritocracy of sorts. Not necessarily a perfect meritocracy. There's a lot of cronyism and a lot of um, things that go down that are unfortunate and that um, are you know influence the economics and influence the politics. So I, at least where I'm coming from, I would say that the biggest problem and the biggest issue, at least from my point of view, isn't necessarily the economic system. I would say the biggest issue is when the government gets involved in the economic system. So um, an example – so we, people talk about Scandinavia and they talk about other, these other locations and the interesting thing about those countries when we talk about you know wealth inequality and, and all this stuff is that those countries amassed a, a giant amount of wealth hundreds of years ago during the Industrial Revolution and they were able to keep that wealth primarily because they didn't get into any world wars. You know, we spent $600 million, which I don't know what – a billion dollars, which I don't even know what that is in today's money adjusted for inflation during the World War II. Scandinavian countries never had to get rid of that initial wealth that they attained through the 19th century. So say, uh, you know, so that's one thing. And on, t- on top of that in Scandinavia, they seem to have way less regulations in a lot of ways. So for instance, occupational licensing laws and uh, permits and all this stuff, they don't have those things in these areas. So basically it, I think in Tennessee, there's an occupational licensing law that states I think you have to pay $1,200 and you have to have 300 hours of non-paid work to wash hair in a salon. So I would say that a lot of these occupational licensing laws, these regulations are preventing poor people from actually getting jobs rather than you know making sure that somebody can wash hair adequately. I mean I totally think a person who doesn't have that much experience and who didn't have a good, uh, good time in school and they weren't taught the necessary things and they're not you know, reading to their grade level, I totally think they could be able to do a lot of jobs that not necessarily need you – know, um, these types of regulations. So I would say that the regulations and people getting involved, aka the government getting involved in a lot of this stuff, would causes a lot of these externalities that we see in today's society. That's where I'm coming from at least. Okay. Well, I think to push back on that, For I sure. think that your examples are a little anecdotal as opposed to, you know, a different view, which would be that government A doesn't have the regulation or the the power to rein in capitalism. At a necessary level, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has been gutted uh, by Trump. It has no power. You know, it was mm-hmm. something that was created after the 2008 financial crisis, which was caused by Wall Street, mm-hmm. which was caused by subprime mortgages and all this this predatory lending. And um, that's, I mean, the fact that regulate sufficient regulations didn't exist is historically the cause of that crisis. And I think we're heading for another one. Should uh, should we not have the necessary, um, you know, uh, institutions to guard against that? The mm-hmm. other thing I would say is that um, to sort of separate 
the state and capitalism mm-hmm. as if they're completely independent opposing institutions, mm-hmm. I think is a fallacy. Mm-hmm. The the state is largely controlled by corporate interests in terms of lobbying, in terms of the, all the money in politics and the political power that wealth will get you. Mm-hmm. I think that you know because capitalism fuels inequality and encourages the wealthy to protect their interests through political power, through the purchasing of that power. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is how n- we we get the term neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. We get it through capitalist interests using the state to their advantage. And I think that you know I'm not con- I'm not as concerned about the hair salon in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. You know, having some some regulation like that's not that regulation. Fine, that might be silly. Like there is a lot of government inefficiency. I'm not defending the state mm-hmm. completely here, but mm-hmm. I'm saying the state is is a tool of of capitalists and corporate interests, and is used by them to facilitate exploitation. And that's neoliberalism, and that is the larger concern. Got you. I see what you're. I see where you're coming from. At least uh, in my perspective, I would say that. The incentives that the government creates through certain zonings, through certain through certain policies, zoning laws, policies. Uh, so I would say that government. So really, at the end of the day, all that corporations have. So the only thing a corporation can do, I mean, like for instance, Costco. The thing they can do to me right now, they can't use force. That's basically where I'm going into this right now. So the, the state has a monopoly on force. The state has uh, complete control over the judicial system, over the you know military, over the police force in a lot of ways. So uh, my my point being is that if you have a you know a business that goes in and tries to manipulate you know their their standing within the economic system by using state power, if they didn't have if they didn't have the ability to use the state power at the first place, they wouldn't be able to get the kickbacks. And all these other things that they would have been able to get through giving to these politicians. Now, I when it comes to you know um, when it comes to uh, occupational licensing that you mentioned, of course, you're not going to you know defend all the stuff. But almost thirty percent of American workers need an occupational uh, licensing uh, you know you know license to actually program you know to actually do their jobs. So that's 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 pushing out a lot of people. That could do the jobs, but just don't have necessarily the money, or because like, uh, or the money, or the ability, or the time to actually work for free to get this stuff. So, like, in, for instance, like in the 1950s, occupational licensing in the workforce is uh, was around uh, fifty. Uh, excuse me, five percent. Now it's around thirty percent. So I would say that that has that has also shown in terms of you know mobility, uh, wealth mobility, and uh, income and mobility. So okay. Yeah. Well. As far as addressing this concern, I think that I would point to the sort of second mm-hmm. current campaign of after Medicare for All that mm-hmm. DSA is doing, which is supporting strong unions that mm-hmm. further the interests of workers. If it is true that all of these unnecessary regulations, occupational hazards are are um, getting in the way of workers – earning their paycheck or they have to work, like you said, 300 hours unpaid to, to in order to cut hair or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, then we should have stronger unions that further the interests of workers, that allow them to collectively organize and negotiate with uh, capitalist power. So mm-hmm. I think that the I think that democratic socialism, you know, it's not it's not a 
a worship the state kind of no, of course not to kind of ideology no, that of that some people might think of it as. I think it's uh, it's pro worker. Mm-hmm. It's it's pro um, human rights, and I think it's just a very persuasive, reasonable, um, you know, and reason, reasonable things they're asking for. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see uh, a, com- a compelling alternative narrative or a compelling um, something to push back against that. So, got you, got you, no, no doubt. So, um, I guess my other point uh, that I had for you is kind of going on about. Um, so, in in a capital, so we've seen. So let's say two hundred years ago, two hundred fifty years ago, uh, pretty much everybody was in farms. In America and pretty much across the world, there was uh, everybody was either you were very extremely poor or you were um, extremely rich and part of the aristocracy. I mean, there was feudalism, and then after that, mercantilism. And then when capitalism came into the into the picture um, in the 19th century, um, in Europe, in in England, actually, over I think it was over a 50 year period, workers' wages rose 90 percent. And uh, primarily the reason for that was because there, because the society itself, the standard of living was rising while the economics was, was rising as well. So I, I would make the argument that over history, capitalism has has created a lot of wealth and has, I mean the majority of people aren't living on farms and working you know, self-sustaining farms anymore. And part of the reason for that is you know, obviously governments have gotten more humane and governments are not as abusive and all this other stuff as they were in the past. Um, especially in the 20th century with democide and all this stuff. But uh, another more important fact is that you know this all happened because the market was working and thriving and people were able to get jobs and people were able to make some money for themselves and then able to move from – so it's basically what's happening sure. right now in China is what happened 250 years ago. And my point is like if it, if it worked out for us, if we're, like, we're you know objectively way more richer than we were and as a society – and uh, even even people who are uh, in poverty in this country um, tend to – and obviously things are horrible. Things are very tough. Things are not great and there needs to be a lot more advantages for people in poverty. But people in poverty here compared to people in poverty in China is a much different thing. Now, my argument is like, well, if it worked here and did OK here, should we give – shouldn't that be the – type of – shouldn't we allow that system since it's worked out? I mean in, in, in a lot of ways it's worked out. I mean, <laughs> in I mean, more ways it has not and I think I've pointed okay. those out. But let me – let's let's sort of take a, take a beat here because okay. OK. In the 19th century, farmers who are you – know, many of whom are destitute, living hand mm-hmm. to mouth, mm-hmm. sure, an economic system like capitalism allowed them to get better paying jobs. You're no longer – completely destitute mm-hmm. and uh and just desperate mm-hmm. but let's let's take a look at beyond the 19th century let's look at between 1918 and 1933 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a period where the very rich took home a much larger proportion of income than the middle class mm-hmm. growth slowed median mm-hmm. wages stagnated and we suffered giant turndowns culminating in the great depression mm-hmm. then after uh you know, between 1947 and 1977, there was a period of great prosperity after FDR and all the, the New Deal and all the things he mm-hmm. put into place. The nation as a whole grew faster and median wages surged. We had a, 
um, a growing middle class ability to, uh, with that was able to consume more goods and services, which created better and, and more jobs, mm-hmm. and it stoked demand. and the And the rising tide lifted most boats. There was still a lot of racial problems, but mm-hmm. um, then in the eighties, like I've pointed out, uh, we've kind of gone back to that early twentieth century uh, style where the very rich control much more. So I would say that this more recent history points to the fact that, um, you know, regardless of the, of the ideology, whether capitalism is good or bad in the ether, Mm -hmm. we can say that, um, you know, a social, strong social safety net where, um, capitalist interests are reined in, not allowed to exploit the middle class wages don't, aren't stagnated where, you know, the wealth is hoarding or the, the wealthy are hoarding all of the money. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that shows that unrestrained sort of laissez-faire capitalism that I'm not saying you, but a lot of libertarians mm-hmm. and, you know, so-called classical liberals like mm-hmm. to point to mm-hmm. uh, is a recipe for disaster. Okay. So let's let's get on recipes for disaster. Um, so in your opinion, what do you feel is the biggest obstacle – because right now obstacles are what's stopping is what's stopping you know because uh, I, I mean I don't technically really in my opinion don't really believe we have a free con- a free market uh, or a laissez-faire I believe it's more cronyism but again aside from that point um, there's obstacles to both you know having a, a more free market and, and to having a democratic socialist uh, you know society so what would you say are the greatest uh, are the biggest obstacles to realizing socialism in America what do you think um, those are they is it is it coming from the state primarily is it coming from society or is it coming from the economic uh, classes or is it coming from the ruling classes well if you mean by socialism like the elimination of capitalism mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. i think it's the fact that everyone participates in it and kind of just plays by the rules we all gotcha. you know go to work for a wage mm-hmm. spend that wage we're part, we're we're just that's how capitalism exists is that everyone has faith in it just like you know the dollar mm-hmm. um so because that's so entrenched mm-hmm. the DSA says look we we know that we're not going to eliminate capitalism anytime soon mm-hmm. but we can curb its excesses we can uh we can remedy the problems it creates mm-hmm. through a platform that is pro human rights that is pro worker mm-hmm. And I think that you know the biggest barriers to to achieving those are, you know, what the the sort of third part of um, of the current campaigns that DSA is doing is you know electoral power, mm-hmm. the kind of following this Bernie Sanders political revolution where mm-hmm. more democratic socialist candidates are running for office, both state and local, mm-hmm. and at the federal level. Yep. Um, so. The political power problem, the money in politics is what is keeping the system so entrenched, is what is preventing um, workers, the middle class, the lower class from having any political power. Mm-hmm. And I think in that sense, I am optimistic and I think that uh, the tide is sort of turning. I think that more candidates are willing to call themselves democratic socialists. I think mm-hmm. that's a good thing and I think that um, – you know, young people are more willing to vote out incumbent senators, congresspeople, whoever, who are not doing the job uh, that that um, that is democratic socialist work. So, so I, that I think is I think the money in politics thing is the, the biggest reason why we don't see um, 
why why we don't see these excesses of capitalism gotcha. curtailed. Gotcha. So, uh, you know, to talk about um, democratic socialism, where would you say uh, in history and in today's uh, world, where do you, where do you think uh, or what is the greatest example of democratic socialism working um, and working towards your uh, your your um, your point of view of it? When, where is the best place this worked, or when is it the greatest example of it? What is? I mean, it's difficult to say. Like you said. No society is entirely capitalist today. No society mm -hmm. is entirely democratically socialist. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. there are elements in in other countries. For example, the Medicare for all idea, the idea mm -hmm. of universal health care, mm -hmm. is in a lot of European countries, uh, Canada. Mm -hmm. The sort of typical examples that someone like me would point to. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, uh, but in, in terms of health care, I think that you know, and and where the WHO, the World Health Organization, ranks mm -hmm. the United States. They're all above us. Yeah, they all have better healthcare systems than us. Objectively, I think. Okay, uh, they are able to to cover, uh, you know, most if not all of their population. And you know, I'll admit in the U.S., it's it's a it's a tougher puzzle just because we're a much more homogenous society. We have many more people, um, but. You, that rich people need to pay more money and that's what's going to pay for it is that we're going to tax the rich um, and provide basic health care um, gotcha. and cover the ailments that people need covered. Gotcha. So, so like one of my biggest um, capitalist uh, you know, economic, economic uh, heroes is uh, Frederick Hayek. Now, Frederick Hayek was a member of the Austrian School of Economics and uh, wrote the book On the Road to Serfdom. Um, one of his his big things that he talks about is having a, a laissez-faire type of economy, but he does believe that the state should offer free health care. He does believe that the state should offer that. So there is a lot of things within the capitalist schools and the capitalist think capitalist theories that do allow for you know the, you know more more you know, instead of classical liberals are known as uh, social liberals or you know who are for a free market, but for uh, but also for a, a pretty big wide social safety. So it, it's not laissez-faire by definition, then, though. Well, no, because you're nationalizing well, I mean, one industry. So as, clo as close as you can get to laissez-faire, as close as you can get to a free market without, because you, you, technically you would be doing that, but that would you would still allow, you know, private health to to be available. You could you would still allow that, like they do in Canada right now, where you where right now in Canada you do have, you know. Paid for uh, medical care, but you also could go to a private doctor. Like so, in an antidote, uh, one of the people I work with is from Canada, from Windsor, and uh, he has a condition in his eye that he has to get a shot in the side of his temple that allows him to be able to see and not get this type of uh, issues with his eyes. So the the problem is, he he comes down every month to Farmington Hills and gets this done, primarily because um, the issue that he's facing is the wait times for him. He does he can't. Go there and you know wait. You know, oh, you can see the doctor in fifteen days. It's like okay, but if I wait any longer, I'm gonna have issues. That's so. You see a lot of people. I mean, that's one person I know. Another person who had a heart issue from Canada came down here. Uh, that also worked with us. Now, obviously, these are anecdotes and don't speak to a greater society or anything. But I do think that the waiting issues, and there has been some studies on you know, how long. You'd have to wait for an MRI in America versus Canada. I think Canada's like somewhere like 180 days was one of the averages. 
that they gave uh, for a specific type of MRI scan. So I think that so I mean, some people talk about like why is America's healthcare so so expensive? Why is it so high up there? I think part of it you could also make the argument that as Americans we go to the doctor way more than Europeans and Canadians do, and we're more cautious and more willing to take you know multiple scans, CAT scans, MRI scans rather than you know people in the um, countries that have universal health care. So I think that would account for some of, you know, the um, the difference there. But, you know, some of the things Bernie Sanders tried to do um, that uh, I think Cory Booker and a couple other people shot down was he tried to get drugs or buy drugs from across Canada, right, and from across uh, state lines and across, you know, our borders. I think that's a great idea. I think we should totally be able to go ahead and find the lowest price and the cheapest price for people to get their drugs going around some of the companies here. So, yeah, I think there, I think the more free they are to, to have more options there, there, you know, they have the cheaper price they can get ultimately. That's what I would say on, and that's what I think Bernie was trying to support there, which is, you know, ironically a little more, um, Free than you know, enclosed and kind of you know, monopolized or oligopolized like our our healthcare system and our, our drug companies. But um, go well, ahead. let me just respond to it because you said a lot there. So yeah, I've heard the wait time problem raised a lot, especially with regard to Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a pro. That's another sort mm-hmm. of population size problem. I don't think that's as big as, as as big of a problem in Europe. But maybe I could be wrong. I don't have numbers there, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd rather, I don't, I don't think that's a, that the wait time issue is a reason not to institute a democratic socialist sort of healthcare vision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's a reason that, uh, we need to provide incentives for people to go into the healthcare industry so that we have more doctors, that we have more services and goods to provide, um, to meet that demand. Uh, and I think that that's possible if we, you know, stop, if we like, you know, essentially make it really hard to become a billionaire because no one should be a billionaire when people are suffering the way they're suffering in our country and around the world. So I think that the wait time issue is, yes, it's anecdotal. I don't, I haven't, I've heard stories both ways from Canada. Uh, Mm -hmm. obviously we live close to there, so um, I've had, I've heard about people who had no problem with it. I've heard about people who've had headaches. Um, but as far as, you know, big pharma goes and, you know, buying drugs from abroad, I mean, that is one of the biggest symptoms of capitalism that is a problem in the healthcare industry is pharmaceutical companies, specifically in the United States, are able to jack up the prices of necessary drugs, of necessary procedures for no reason other than they want to make more money. And the same drugs that cost hundreds if not thousands of dollars here cost an infinitesimally smaller amount abroad. Mm-hmm. And that's just preposterous. And there's, mm-hmm. there needs to be regulate. Like no company should be able to do that for life-saving medication. I have a friend whose diabetic medication mm-hmm. went up, you know, I don't know, how many percentage points, but a significant amount to the point where it was thousands of dollars a month for him to get mm-hmm. healthcare coverage. So mm-hmm. the other thing about big pharma is that capitalism actually disincentivizes innovation in that industry because they don't, there have been memos and leaked documents from inside 
meetings of, of big pharma executives where they talk about how they don't want to cure X disease, X problem because they won't make money anymore on whatever drug they're pushing. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is the way that capitalism disincentivizes innovation. It disincentivizes uh, basic human rights or you know meeting those human rights and mm -hmm. actively promotes exploitation and the withholding of necessary medical care from people, which is, I mean, just unconscionable. Got you. Morally. No, got you. Got you. So like um, I guess to your point about you know the drug prices being uh, expensive and stuff, I would uh, – one of my points to, to that is that you know Americans, especially American taxpayers, we are funding a lot of the research into um, a lot of these drugs. A lot of these companies are here. They're getting grants and they're getting all this stuff. So Americans in a lot of ways are subsidizing a lot of these countries outside, this, uh, outside America who are getting these drugs. We're subsidizing these drugs and then the cost over there is lower. So then obviously these companies over here would raise the cost because we're subsidizing the drugs over there in terms of research and development particularly, which is the main – which is what I've been told is the main cost uh, point of uh, – for those type of companies. Well, if that's the case, I mean there are drugs, for example, that HIV drug that mm -hmm. Martin Shkreli jacked up the price yeah. of. It went from what, $15 to $400 or some, some crazy number yeah, like that. Yeah. That wasn't because of subsidies or government intervention. That was because he wanted to put more money in his pocket. And that is that is the mentality. I mean, I don't know what policy you're referring to as far as subsidizing. What, 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 what does the government do to subsidize R&D in other countries? Well, no, not, not, well so we make, the, we make the drugs here, right? The drugs are made here. The okay. drug companies are here. Where are they getting the grants from? From which government? From the United States government. When they get any of these research and development you know, deals or anything like that when they want to make these new drugs or even to update new drugs or combine drugs. So once they get the grant or any of this money from the government, right, then that would go towards the company. Okay. So taxpayers would, would throw money to help these companies out in a lot of ways, which I don't think they should in any, in any form or fashion. So what that does is we're not getting any of the other countries that are getting these medications from these companies in America are not also subsidizing any of these drugs prices or any of these other things. So Americans are, are subsidizing these drug prices, which cause these drugs to be cheaper in the other countries. But since we've already subsidized them and they're obviously not making a profit over there, the only way for them to – at least it's an argument. The only way for them to stick around and not completely you know, be shaky and not be – not have you – know, um, some type of failure within their structure is to charge us over because they're losing so much over there. And that well, wasn't if, if the company if the company's being subsidized, it controls the R and D, it controls their drug. Mm -hmm. Why would they be selling it for so much less abroad as opposed to here? Well, pr primarily for a few different reasons. One is there's caps over there. There's you know price floors and price ceilings towards how much you can charge for a certain for a certain thing or. For anything like that, but primarily, you know, at least from from where I'm trying to, you know, my point of view on this and where I'm trying to come from is that, you know, it gets down to what is the purpose of the state in terms of the government to do and to to manage these um, these offices and these things. So, two of the biggest regulated fields in this country were housing or is housing and finance. Those are the two most regulated 
underneath underneath banking. Banking is a top regulated field industry in in, the, in America. Right after that, it's finance, and right after that is housing. <laughs> the the two the two in two thousand seven two thousand eight the two um, what do you call it uh, industries that failed was both housing and both well, both housing and um, financing. So the regulations that and like I said, those are the most some of the most uh, highly regulated uh, industries in this country. Those regulations created incentives and in certain things. So you talked about the Great Recession. What a lot of people, you know, also forget about the Great Recession is that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, or Freddie Mac, were given incentives and told to, hey, give people who necessarily don't have the right credit or necessarily don't have these uh, these you know signals, give them money to get a house that you know that they can't afford and can't pay off. So it incentivized these companies and these groups to give people loans that they knew they couldn't pay off. So these people would re- be rewarded in the short time and give the kickbacks to the government. And that's kind of why, at least from my point of, point of view and perspective, there was a – because the thing is like if a bank doesn't want to get its thing you know, defaulted on, doesn't want to get its loan defaulted on, no way. And the thing is, like, what the bank? What's the bank going to do when both the finance market and both the housing market busts, and they have a house on themselves? So, well, it, I mean, we have a lot of irons in the fire here now. Sure. We're we're going from healthcare yep. to banking to the Great Recession. It's a lot to keep up with. Yeah, but you, I, you I, I just it up earlier. That's why I want to. Yeah, cover yeah. It. No, that's that's fair. Um, I guess I would just say like, you got to consider collateralized debt obligations in terms of why. Financial, uh, you know, financial companies, you know, would give out loans to people they knew couldn't pay them because they did that. They knew mm-hmm. that people w- weren't mm-hmm. wouldn't be able to pay, and yet they did it anyway because mm-hmm. they would sell them as C- uh, you know, put them together as CDOs and sell yep. them off, yep. even though they weren't worth anything. They mm-hmm. would sell. You know, and so, that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were a part of that, big time. But it was a capitalist venture, no doubt. <laughs> I mean. Look at any analysis of, um, you know, from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau of why the Great Recession happened. And they will point to the fact that even though it's one of the most heavily regulated industries in the Mm -hmm. nation, finance, it wasn't regulated nearly enough. And that there are loopholes in regulations that might – regulations might exist, but there are always ways around them. So this shows why capitalism is – is a force that will find a way, you know, around whatever barrier it sees in front of it to achieve its ends. And its ends are often evil in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, you know, this is a, this is a, a, a sort of a case for a more radical leftist politics no, as opposed sure. to a left, a, a less so one or a, a middle a centrist politics, wherein mm-hmm. we just try to curtail, the excesses of capitalism one beat at a time as opposed to um, really tearing the whole thing down. Oh, for sure. And, you know, just to quickly end on my last point here, uh, you know, in terms of uh, what capitalism is means to me and what it is, I would say capitalism is, at least in my opinion, the greatest force to lift people out of poverty. If you look at the last 20 years, nearly a billion people have been taken out of extreme poverty, a billion people. So I think – and the reason for that, it wasn't because of you know foreign aid. It wasn't because of us helping them. It was because these places liberalized and they were able to create jobs, able to create businesses and people were able to move from destitute poor into the middle class and hopefully these people will one day run factories and one day have their own jobs and their own businesses. So 
what I'm saying is capitalism has worked in the West in a lot of ways in terms of raising the standard of living. Now, in a lot of these countries that don't have this ability and that their areas are so bad, I do believe that we, we should not take away the tools that we've used to become so rich and not let them have the tools to become, you know, to become as rich, if not richer. I mean, look at Hong Kong. It was a fishing village. 80 years ago and less than 80, less than our time here, it, the, you know, per capita income is equal to ours, if not a little bit more. And they're higher on the economic freedom index. And they have uh, a lot of great things going on there and primarily because of the opportunities that they've gotten through capitalism. So, I mean, but at the end of the day, you know, uh, I'm really appreciative that you came here today and they gave me your point of view and your perspective. I think it's important for us to have these types of talks and to really understand where, you know, the principles are coming from. Where you know where the policies will will lead us in terms of you know our, the incentives and how these incentives, whether the incentives are you know done by companies or the incentives is done by government, like I believe, how these things can manipulate and create further you know discontent within the market. Well, thank you for having me on, Virgil. For sure. I appreciate being here. The last thing I'll say is that poverty is a necessary condition of wealth accumulation. Okay, for sure, definitely. I, I disagree with that, but okay, for sure. Thank you. Have a good day. Mm.